0: end of intermission part
1: two okay welcome to two old first talk sci-fi i'm david clink and i am troy arkin Today's episode looks at 2001 A Space Odyssey. This is part two of our two-part episode. We're recording it on Saturday, January 15th, 2022 for broadcast on Saturday, February 5th. In case you missed it, please check out Season 2, Episode 8, which was published on January 22, 2022, which was the first part. Uh, we have two special guests, Mark Asquith and Robert J. Sawyer. Troy did give a spoiler alert at the beginning of Part 1. We're recording this session via Zoom. We did provide a bio for Mark and Rob in the first part, and their bios appear online at our 20f.ca website. Welcome back, Mark and Rob.
2: Great Thank you. you. Delighted to
1: be back. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump right in with some questions. And and Troy, you had a question about, I think, a comic of 2001 or something like that.
3: Well, I did want to touch on the fact that, um, uh, you know, Jack Kirby was part of the the Marvel uh, 2001 adaptation that came out. I think I want to say like later 70s, and it might have even been part of the whole sci-fi boom that happened once Star Wars was out. I seem to recall, but I, I thought Mark might have some insights into this, and, and Rob, you may as well. Um, guys, do you have anything to, to talk about that? Mark's the guy to ask about it. I remember <laughs> glancing at it on
2: the stand and thinking, no. <laughs> um, it's one of the few
0: i i purged most of my collection and this was one of the few things that i kept and it's really quite fascinating but it has really absolutely nothing to do with 2001 it's just jack kirby doing his you know cosmic stuff um it's great in its own way but i i would even say this isn't canon like if you're right. talking about 2001 this is it's really its own thing Okay. The only
1: canon thing is it should be shot out of a canon, possibly. But um, the one thing, because we're going to try to move uh, quickly with questions, and and we can just jump in and we can go where we go. But I was just wondering about just the idea that there were all those initial poor reactions that changed to praise over the years and and any comments about how it was first. Because sometimes there are classic
2: films or things that people just, it wasn't, the audience just wasn't ready for it yet beyond just the editing issue. It's not just in film, it's in anything. This was a paradigm shift. And people simply didn't have anything to compare it to. They didn't have any uh, uh, language to articulate what it was that Kubrick had done. You noted that uh, review by Roger Ebert that you quoted from was from a, uh, the 1990s, almost 30 years after the film came out, 1997, I believe. When that it takes a long time to process something, and it's just like the theory of evolution. Which come on, we didn't—I didn't descend from a monkey to everybody going, "Oh yeah, okay, that's the way. Well, that's what it is." It, you know, it takes a long time for a whole new way of looking at things to make sense. And the initial reaction is the easy one, which is, "I don't want to do the work of reconfiguring the way I contemplate things," and so I dismiss it. And that was certainly what happened with uh, lots of great critics like Pauline Kael dismissing the film when it first came out. Yeah, David and I.
3: Sorry, go ahead, Mark.
2: No, Rob has a really good point. It was so radically
0: different. I mean, even structurally, you know, talking about the four elements of the film, it is four separate things that are really quite separate. And it isn't until you leave the theater that you are now starting to think, well, How do I put that quartet together in my head? You know, what is this film about? And, you know, people have argued about what the theme of the film is. You know, go ahead. Um, But for a moment, I just want to talk about what happened just visually and the fact that uh, you had a director who decided to use um you know special effects from a Canadian film called Universe who was really strident for scientific accuracy, so he hired a couple of people from NASA he had young technical wizards on that film who really when you look at this film in a in the craft of filmmaking, this is one of the most extraordinary films ever made, probably the pinnacle of what we call in camera filmmaking um when you see that that you know the 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 spaceship that is on its way into deep space and it's rotating, Kubrick actually built a centrifuge to film that stuff. I mean, it is an extraordinary thing. And because there were so many moments in the film that even filmmakers at the time would say, I don't know how he did that. How did that pen float? How did that happen? You know, there were so many visual moments in the film that I think is just became overwhelming to people. And nobody had really made a film that essentially for, for a big chunk of that film is a silent film with classical music. I mean, it's, it's a really revolutionary film on that level. And, and so Rob is right. People did not know how to respond to something that was that shockingly new.
3: Yeah, David and I were talking uh, in our our pre-production notes about the the comparisons to uh, Joyce's Ulysses, which is what Robert was saying. When you have something that is so revolutionary and it's interesting that both Ulysses and, and 2001 use the Homeric journey, but uh, you know, Ulysses caused a massive critical controversy before eventually being uh, claimed as a classic.
0: Well, and because it was so revolutionary, it's interesting now to look at so many films And they all have their roots in 2001. So almost all the films by Spielberg, almost all the films by Lucas, you know, certainly all the science fiction films, uh, Star Wars owes it a huge debt. Um, I, I can't think of a science fiction film of that kind that that it doesn't owe some sort of, you know, fealty to this film. It's it's a it's a landmark.
3: One of the things we wanted to ask you guys was uh, you know there's the famous quote from Kubrick saying that you know he wanted to create uh sort of the first really great science fiction film, but clearly we know that there there were some hallmarks of science fiction film prior to two thousand and one. Uh, are there any that you you want to throw out there, Robert or Mark as some of your favorites pre yeah uh,
2: metropolis Metropolis yeah. is a spectacular film, the silent film version. Uh, silent film, uh, which I saw with live um, organ accompaniment at that same film series we talked about earlier at the Ontario science center, the 1970s forbidden planet, uh, which predates 2001 by, uh, by a decade is a spectacular science fiction film. Uh, uh, the day the earth stood still is a spectacular, thoughtful science fiction film. So, you know, Kubrick was an egomaniac. He took credit for things that were other people's contributions to the film. As you mentioned early on, Troy, Kubrick took a special effects credit, and that rankled, quite rightly, Douglas Trumbull. Um, and I maybe it takes that level of egomania to make a masterpiece, but it certainly wasn't the first good science fiction film, nor was it even the first, the only good science fiction film of 1968. As I say, the original Planet of the Apes came out almost exactly the same time, 1968, I mean, almost the same month. Uh, and is, uh, it came out in February and 2001 in April. So a couple of months later, uh, also a spectacular film. Yeah, I, think. I have to agree with Rob.
0: It really is extraordinary that Rob's three picks are my three picks were Metropolis. Uh you can't look at 2001 I think without looking at Metropolis. Really an extraordinary piece of work. Of course Forbidden Planet. Um again, you know, big heady ideas are in that film and then The Day the Earth Stood Still also with political undertones and and all of them are all of three of those films are grounded in a certain kind of mundane world. All of them have political overtones. All of them have moments of, of visual poetry in them. Yeah, Kubrick stood on the shoulders of giants when he made 2001. Now, he did achieve it a remarkable thing, um, but he can't really claim to be the first.
3: No, and if we really want to go back to the first, we could look at Journey to the Moon as well. Nineteen oh two, Méliès, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And and really, it's got to be seen as as groundbreaking for the time as two thousand and one was in sixty eight. Absolutely. Well,
0: and and weirdly, although it isn't directly "quote unquote" science fiction, the the special effects in King Kong have to be mentioned mm. as well, which is a really extraordinary. Uh, film as well in terms of pushing what special effects at the time could do.
1: Yeah, I like Thing from Another World from around 1951 and also, um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, because that is to me, it's not just a horror thing. That is a science fiction. These things are seeds from some other planet that are actually trying
2: to take over things like A Day of the Trip is kind of thing. So I think, uh, the Kevin McCarthy film is quite amazing. You know what? That's very interesting that you bring up that film because I know we're going to talk about this film in the context of its time. But one part of 2001 that has not aged well is the paranoia at the heart of the film. And that's in Invasion of the Body Snatchers and in The Thing. Uh, They're Mm. films of the Cold War era. The notion that the most important thing you can do if you discover extraterrestrial evidence of extraterrestrial life is keep it a secret, which is the heart and soul of 2001. That scene between Dr. Floyd and Andrey Smislav is mm. Dr. Floyd flat out lying to Smislav, the Russian, about the fact that they have discovered uh, evidence of an- extraterrestrial mm. life. And this is dormant, as far as they know, Four million year old evidence. It has no bearing on the here and now. And still the number one driving thing in the plot of that film is it's a secret. It's so secret ridiculously mm. in the context of the film that Dave and Frank do not know why they're going to Jupiter. Mm. Hal calls it a melodramatic touch that they were trained mm. that the other uh, astronauts, the ones who are in the hibernation uh, coffins during the flight are trained separately. They know that they're in a voyage to discover extraterrestrial, uh, the origin of this extraterrestrial monolith. But mm. this paranoia, today mm. we see news stories every few days or weeks about, oh, maybe they've discovered life on Mars. Maybe we've detected uh, an extrasolar uh, entity moving into our solar system. Maybe there's an exoplanet that's just like Earth. The whole world is prepared and ready but the film hinges on this notion that it would be it would drive people insane if you told them there was life elsewhere in the universe, and it has to be kept secret. Bah, humbug.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's handled a bit better in 2010. The, the, the film 2010. The, 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 there is the actual tension, what's going on on the uh, ship, and trying to figure out how to uh, resolve this. Um, I was one thing that that took me out just a bit was this idea. And they mentioned several times how Hal has control over basically all the ship's functions, yet is incapable of stopping Dave Bowman. Um, part of that, I just didn't quite understand.
2: There are two things there that are wrong. Uh, the first is we never see the emergency manual airlock until Dave uses it. Um, and, uh, that I think is a filmmaking mistake. They were making up the film as you go, as they go along. Uh, you know, um, to some considerable degree, I've got an, an action figure here behind me as we're talking. You can't see it, uh, in the podcast of one of the astronauts from Discovery. And of course, Frank Poole expires because there's a hose for him to breathe through, uh, that gets disconnected by Hal. Right. He doesn't get crushed by Hal. He gets asphyxiated by Hal while he's out in the spacewalk. Those hoses aren't there in the sequence that had been filmed earlier on the surface of the moon with William Sylvester as Floyd and, and uh, the rest of the Clavius base crew. And the reason they're not there is they hadn't thought about this moment where Hal is going to kill him. So the suit was modified later in the film to make it have this single point of failure vulnerability that no spacesuit designer would ever put in a spacesuit. And the point is that that door is a manual door. And so Dave, manually operating with those hand controls, the arms of the space pod rotates around over and over again, a manual control, not an electronic one. And that's why Hal can't override it, and Dave manages to get in. But in terms of filmmaking, it was Chekhov's gun going off before you had seen it hanging on the wall. There was no indication that there was an emergency, and they just had to pan by it at some point earlier in the film to indicate, ah, there's a way, you know, there's a door. It's in the back Hmm. of your mind. And then when Frank, uh, Dave does it, goes through the manual door, you go, oh, yeah, of course, the manual door. Why didn't I think of that? Instead of, hey, wait a minute, this is literally a deus ex machina. He would die except for the fact that this thing, this mechanical device, this machina, that we had never seen before comes to rescue him being a mechanical airlock on the side of the spherical hall of discovery
1: well it's also odd that that he can actually make it all the way through the ship because if he's going to go out into with to retrieve um frank's body the, frank's body that Hal can't then take control of the ship, just like what he did with Frank's one to actually kill Frank. He could have taken control of Dave's um, um, pod, pod. You know, or he could have turned off all the air on the on the yes living condition. Like like, however it is, I just don't understand how. And maybe we just have grown up and have watched so much and understand so much science fiction and fantasy and all of this stuff over the decades that we think
2: about that now, but maybe an audience back in the 60s may not have thought of. Right. We live with computers and virtually, rounded to the nearest percent, 0% of the audience of 2001 and 1968 had ever seen a computer, even Mm -hmm. seen a computer.
3: A do they expl- yeah, go ahead. I, I just please. want to say within that scene too, do they explain the circumstances of, of why Dave doesn't have his helmet? Yeah, he rushed out and, and he was already wearing the spacesuit uh, and he
2: rushed out and simply didn't take it with him to save Frank. He assumed yeah. that he wasn't going to need it. He was going to go out, come back, but it was stupid to not take it. I mean, this is, you know, what well, we the recall- abyss the abyss yeah. did the same thing. Any number of films, uh, uh, Prometheus, where, you know, which is the alien prequel where all the guys say, oh, there's something weird going on in that egg. Let me put my face in it, right? You know? <laughs> uh, it was, that's absolutely right. The plot depended on the character being an idiot.
3: Right. Which is contrary to the idea that they're supposed to be the most sort of calm, level headed. Right. Or the first intelligent science, you know,
2: uh, science fiction film. Uh, When Klaatu comes out of his flying saucer, he's wearing a helmet. Yeah, look where it got him. But anyways, so
1: um, one question we had, which I think uh, Troy had, was the idea that you cannot have the movie Star Wars without 2001. Is that a fair statement?
0: Well, I think if you ask, you know, if you ask Lucas, he would definitely say that he was influenced in a huge way by 2001 I, I think to me what that statement has always felt is that he looked at it and went wow you know you can do the special effects and partly too i can tell a visual story i can tell a visual story and i don't have to write a lot of dialogue which of course is lucas's achilles heel as a writer <laughs> yeah. So, but you know so for me um You you know, it's hard to pin down influence because you can look at a film like Hidden Fortress and say that affected Star Wars. But I think Star Wars might have happened without that. I don't think you can look at Star Wars and say it happens without Flash Gordon or it happens without 2001. It needed those two things. And frankly, Jack Kirby. I think it needed a lot of Jack Kirby um,
2: for this to happen. The film, I don't think Star Wars owes anything narratively. To 2001. But as Mark said, Lucas saw that you could do believable space stuff. And then he said, well, let's do believable World War I dogfights, uh, like between, you know, the Red Baron and, and, uh, well, not Snoopy, but whoever the real Red Baron fought, uh, you know, and you could, you could do it with a level of believability that could not have been done prior to, uh, 2001. There's nine years between the two films 2001, 68, star wars seventy seven But the film that could not have existed without two thousand and one and maybe to its detriment in some people's eyes is uh, Star Trek the Motion Picture, which definitely tried to have that epic look and indeed Douglas Trumbull came in at you know the eleventh hour and saved Star Trek the Motion Picture uh by providing the same sort of epic visuals that uh that um 2001 had had and then all yeah, the, right films down sit- the
0: slit scan stuff absolutely like great there there are moments in that film totally rob where yeah you can see that there was not only i mean it it's now at the dna of that the visual dna of that film
2: that's right and films like interstellar that came later much much later owe a great great deal to the look and feel of 2001 a space odyssey
3: yeah. And I actually, even though in the past I have knocked Lucas for, you know, owing a debt narratively, that's not yeah, what I, I, I wasn't going there. It was basically just that so much groundbreaking was done by Kubrick and the crew uh with two thousand and one and what could be done now. And I, I will say that the idea of epic full orchestral classical
2: style music which John Williams brought to the Star Wars universe and subsequently every science fiction film, even if they had original scores, seemed to go for is a direct descendant of Kubrick having used the wonderfully orchestral uh, classical music score in
3: 2001. Mm-hmm. I mean, my first experience was with Star Wars not 2001 and so when i eventually saw 2001 and i saw that uh shot of discovery go past us and then you see the rear of discovery Mm -hmm. and then i realized where the opening shot of star wars had come from that's right and i'm sure that was a tip of the hat considering that's the first uh, thing you see in star wars i'm sure it must have been um anyway uh yeah and and of course it was brilliant that uh someone like Lucas realized that there was a need to have something like industrial light and magic always in place uh you know so these films could be made. Uh, we can um we've got about
1: 10 minutes where we can just basically go back and forth. I I did find something neat on uh trivia from IMDb the actual cable that was sent between um Clark and Kubrick, um, where um, they sort of exchange this idea of would you be interested? So Stanley Kubrick, Doctor Strangelove, Paths of Glory, etc. Interested in doing film on ETS? Stop. Are you interested? Query. Thought you were a recluse. <laughs> stop. And Clark replied, frightfully interested in working with Enfant Terrible. Uh, stop. Contact my agent. Stop. What makes Kubrick think I'm a recluse? Query. Um, this kind of back and forth before they decide, hey, let's work together. And that was quite the uh, the working relationship.
2: And he was the right guy to choose, Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, Troy mentioned this at the outset. There were actually three in-genre and one out-of-genre, big science fiction writers at the time. The in-genre are Arthur C. Clarke, Isaac Asimov, and Robert A. Heinlein. And the out-of-genre one, of course, is Ray Bradbury. And the film simply couldn't have been done, I think, without Clark's contribution. Asimov would have given something very, uh, you know, reasonable in terms of its extrapolation. But Asimov was in no way a mystic. And Clark, for all of his rationality, was the guy who really did a great job of combining uh, you know, uh, an interest in hard science and technology with a sense that the universe was a grand, awesome and awe-inspiring place. You see it in Childhood End, Childhood's End, his novel. You see it in so many of his works. You don't get that sense out of, uh, out of Asimov and Heinlein. Well, they did make a Heinlein movie, you know, Destination Moon. And it was as boring, uh, and, uh, pedestrian as you might expect. Uh, because it had nothing to say other than with interesting hardware, someday we will go to the moon. Clark and Kubrick realized that as much as the hardware was wonderful, the movie wasn't about that. The movie was about what it means to be human, where we came, eschatological questions, where we came from, the dawn of man, what we're going to be in the near future, the uh Uh, uh, stuff on the moon and jupiter and beyond the infinite the ultimate fate of humanity and of intelligence and you wouldn't have got that from any of the others and from bradbury you never would have got the verisimilitude the real science uh, uh and the real look of technology that made 2001 such an enduring favorite it had to be arthur c Clarke. Kubrick uh, not only was spot on in his casting of that film, as Mark said earlier, he was also spot on in choosing his collaborator.
0: Yeah, not just the writer co-collaborator, but all the special effects guys. I mean, you look, Douglas Trumbull, what a brilliant pick that was.
2: And Trumbull was in his 20s. I mean, these were guys that that Kubrick had an enormous ability. And Richter was also a very young man, Daniel Richter, uh, to recognize enormous talent he didn't need to see a CV that spanned decades. He could see the talent in the individual right at the beginning of their careers. I also appreciate just the character of Hal and, and just how it, it,
1: you know, this is one of the early sort of artificial intelligence, Uh, computer characters and literature. One of the things that we've done in the past, even though we don't really have much time, but we could all sort of pick what our favorite sort of line or lines are. But I love this selection from Hal, where he says, I know I've made some very poor decisions recently, but I can give you my complete assurance that my work will be back to normal. I've still got the greatest enthusiasm and confidence in the mission, and I want to help you. And with
2: Douglas Rain's voice saying that, It's just brilliant. Well, for me, the great Hal line, you know, comes from reality. Uh, One of the very first talking computers ever Mm. attempts at speech synthesis sang this song. The title of the song, Mm. by the way, is Daisy Bell. But uh, you never hear that. Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer. It's Hal dying as he sings this... This charming little song about a bicycle built for two. It,
0: cra- it really,
2: really, uh,
0: it really affected me at watching the movie for the first time at the age of 12. That death mm. scene is is just Shakespearean to me. And the fact that it just goes, as Rob said, it goes back to the very first thing that he was programmed to do. And it. it I don't know, I, I just find that heartbreaking.
3: Yeah, for me it was very similar to uh the end of um Flowers for Algernon. War- oh, uh, I think of war games with no, the, the, the going back to basic like the chess program to
1: defeat it. But you're right. There's I, a, I wasn't thinking of Flowers for Algernon. Yeah. yeah.
3: And the uh and just a genius to throw in, you know, a song that has that line about I'm half crazy. Yes. Yeah. All for the, for lo- the love, love of you. you. Yeah. Oh, right. Actually the, the full line works. Yeah. But there's a few questions just that that oh, appear. I, I, oh, go if ahead, please. Try. If, if we have time, Dave. Yeah, I was yeah, going to yeah. throw in. Uh, I guess my two cents there for a selection. Um, yeah. And again, because you know Kubrick's f- film is uh, primarily visual and, and and non-verbal. Actually, went back to the source material or the original source material. I guess the Sentinel. Um, and I love just the ending of of that story. Uh, and the last couple of lines are. We have broken the glass of the fire alarm and have nothing to do but to wait. I do not think we will have to wait for long. It's a terrific short
2: story. It is so quintessentially Clark. Um, And uh, yeah, I just love that short story, The Sentinel. And in the novel, I've got to say, the last line of 2001, uh, you know, the star child uh, is in orbit around Earth. He's swept aside all the orbiting nuclear weapons. And uh, he was not sure what he would do next, but he would think of something. Mm -hmm. And that's the end. Just terrific. Brilliant.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Did we want to um, try... Um, I don't know if anyone's had an opportunity to come up with the, the Schrödinger's cat, like t- having just an unusual or a different thing. Cause we can do if well, not, well we can
3: keep I going. have
0: one and I would love to do mine because believe sure it, it or not, what we've been talking about actually works in terms of where yeah. I'm gonna go.
3: So. And we also we did tease it in episode one, so we should pay it off.
0: Yeah. So shall I begin?
3: Absolutely. I was to go down here. Yeah, I
2: got nothing.
3: Do you want to introduce okay. my cat is totally dead. Yours maybe. may be both, but mine's dead. Uh do you have a little uh do we just want to jump into it? Maybe? Yeah, go right ahead. It's basically okay. just taking right. like something and, and just going going uh gotcha. somewhere else with it. Alrighty. So in episode one, we did have our dream cast and we would like to have our little warped version of that, which we call Schrodinger's cast um, for 2001. Um, so I will start, I guess, um, what I did mostly was I stuck with the cast of Lolita playing roles in uh, 2001. And in a few uh, cases, I've gone on to other Kubrick films where I couldn't find somebody from Lolita. So for Dr. David Bowman, I had Sue Lyons. And uh, for Frank Poole, I had Nabokov himself playing Frank Poole. Okay, and I picked the
1: cast from *McGruber*. Uh, which has just uh, come out on um, TV. So I picked Will Forte as Dave Bowman and Ryan Phillippe as, uh, or Phillippe as Dr. Frank Poole.
0: Well, mine, mine is a conceptual piece. And so I'm going to kind of break your format so that we can all discuss. But to me, the key was picking the, the analog that would work. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, okay, it's got to be Star Wars because we're going to be mm. talking about Star Wars and how it was influenced by 2001. And I thought, okay, so how about this? Bowman is Luke. Poole is Leia. Floyd is Han Solo. Now we have the perfect moon watcher. That's Chewbacca. Mm-hmm. Dr. Smyslov, of course, is Grand Moff Tarkin. Hal is my problem. So uh-huh. I'll leave him aside. Uh, who should Hal be? The monolith is R2-D2. I love the whistles with the monolith. I think that would be hilarious. The star child is C- C-3PO. But who should Hal 9000 be voiced by?
2: See, I think...
0: Obi-Wan C- Kenobi oh. or Darth Vader?
2: I No, I, I think you've mixed it up here because I think C-3PO should be Hal 9000. He's got mm-hmm. that very uh-huh. congenial, yes. uh, cultured British tone to him. Which, as you know, uh, the actor, Anthony Daniels, brought to Lucas, who originally wanted a kind of a uh, Brooklyn-esque, a brusque character. No, no, it must be very cultured and and reasonable. Okay. Um, Oh, yeah. So that brings us back to who should play uh, the star child. And for me, Jabba the Hutt. Mm. (laughs) 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 I love it. (laughs) yeah
0: and well the other one is yeah I I just thought that was super fun but then of course we don't have Sir Alec Guinness or James Earl Jones in our cast which is a real shame they're both great
3: right yeah no that's a great idea though I like it yeah I like
0: I, I was I it was funny because the moment I thought of it, I, I of course went straight to moonwatcher and I thought, Oh my God, there's the perfect one. And then Hal works well for a number of voices, but I think I, I, I'm beginning to think that Rob, Rob's choice of C3PO is yeah. better.
3: Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I think you got to go 3PO. I mean, he's a, he's a droid that's there to serve. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah I think that's, that's perfect. Although I'm thinking with the, um, with Moonwatcher, even though i love the the wookiee idea mm. uh my mind is blanking what is it what are the mini wookiees called in the ewoks perfect? yeah maybe some ewoks and i don't know if there's a main moon i think they're called merchandising Right, <laughs> <Yeah, war. laughs> right right that was the birth of my cynicism when that film came out and i realized these things are just here to sell products um yeah, yeah they should yeah, be the more upfront and Ewok fair like jurassic park you know, Jurassic yeah. Park at least
1: had the actual thing where they had the toy, they had the stuff right in your face because they were actually marketing the film inside the film, which is fair. Sorry, Mark, I cut you off.
0: No, no, it's quite all right. I was just saying the head Ewok was wicked, but but uh, but I I think sorry, I think it's got to be a Wookiee. But yeah, know <laughs> I I yeah, this idea as you mentioned of, of Jurassic Park putting the merchandising actually in your film. And using the logo, that's very meta. I think that's pretty funny.
3: Is it too much to suggest that perhaps the monolith should be a physical representation of the force? No? That's too much? Well, you know, it could be
2: that's where Obi Wan comes in, right? After right. he's been cut down and he, you know, the shimmering version of Obi Wan we see at the end of uh of Jedi. Um yeah.
3: Yeah, I always want to do a uh, play around with my uh, my Final Cut editing and and throw in the uh, uh, Terrence Stamp and the, the two others from Superman Two in onto the monolith <laughs> because the, the uh, Forbidden is not the Forbidden Zone. What's it? You called? will a bow down. Zone. Yeah. You will bow down before me, Moon Watcher. <laughs> not just yes. you, yes. someday your heirs. That's right. That's right. Gotta love Terrence Stamp. Uh Dave, are we finishing up uh, yeah. our our end of this madness? I think we're probably good with our stuff because one thing
1: that we can look at because I know that you had picked Peter Sellers and and James Mason are two of my favorite um actors for a couple of the um things if you want. I'm okay with it because I just picked people just from uh,
3: *McGruber*. But if you wanted to just finish yours and then we'll ask our final question and then we'll get this whole thing. uh, Okay, well... Yeah, okay, I'll just do this quickly then, and I'll, I'll just look at my sheet here, which may be in a different order. So yeah. I had, yeah, uh, Sue Lyons, Nabokov, Frank Poole, uh, Hal, I had James Mason. I would love to hear Hal uh, James Mason do Hal. Um, I had Shelley Winters as Haywood Floyd, Peter Sellers as Moonwatcher, the Catholic lead, Legion of Decency as the monolith. Um, and the Star Child I went with The Shining Twins just the, the two shining twins as two star children. I thought that would be nicely creepy. And, Oh, it, do we call, how do we pronounce that name again? Uh, Robert, was it Smeeslaw?
2: Andre smeeslov smeeslov I,
3: I went with a Hitchcockian, uh, moment and I had Kubrick as him. Oh One yeah. Thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah, one thing, Troy, you were mentioning to me just pre pre the podcast was about the Catholic League of Decency who had a number of issues with Kubrick films like Clockwork Orange and what was the other Lolita. One they, and Lolita. Yeah, they,
3: but they, you, what did you say about them with two thousand and one? Supposedly, they gave Kubrick an award um, because they felt it tied in with divinity and man's search for for God, which I think Kubrick would probably bristle at, but. Different move, different uh, movies for
1: different folks, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so final question, uh, because we're just out of time here, is that uh, just for uh, uh, Mark and Rob, of course, is there anything that you may have picked up, say, in the last five or 10 years about 2001 A Space Odyssey that you didn't know before that
2: surprised you when you learned about it? I think Daniel Richter's contributions to the film. Uh, He has his own autobiography out. And the book uh, Space Odyssey that came out for the uh, about the making of 2001 that came out for the 50th anniversary in 2018 uh, also went into great detail about his contributions. He wasn't just a guy uh, who happened to be in a suit. He was very much instrumental in shaping the entire Dawn of Man sequence.
0: And Mark, do you have anything to add i I have to be honest, no, because one of the things that because I was so obsessed about two thousand and one, I really learned a lot, and probably the last sort of revelation uh was in a discussion, I think actually with Rob and with a friend of mutual friend of ours, Michael Lennock, probably about fifteen or twenty years ago, where I found out a lot more about universe and the film of universe and the fact that gentlemen was actually asked to come on board and and be one of the special effects people. Wally Gentleman.
2: We haven't mentioned his full name yet. Wally Gentleman.
0: Oh, oh, sorry. I should have. Sorry. um, One of the things that I didn't learn in your time frame was the contribution of Wally Gentleman who worked on the NFB film uh, Universe, which had a huge impact on um, Kubrick at the time. And you can see why if you watch it. I think it's online. And I had not known about that. I knew that Douglas Raines was the narrator of that film, and that may have been an influence as well. But uh, yeah, that was an interesting thing to learn. But really, to be honest, this film has been so analyzed and so uh, plumbed that by the time you get to two, you know 2022, we've learned just about everything that there is to know about that film. and you know obviously the speculation will continue, but the actual facts of that film are certainly out there. And uh, I, 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 you have to put in a plug for TIFF because they did a big, huge Kubrick retrospective. And I got to see his camera. I got to see the video of how they made that centrifuge. Uh, really, really fantastic that people who are interested in film and particularly people like the people at TIFF really decided to preserve this piece of filmmaking history.
1: Uh, I'm I'm so appreciative of you mentioning Universe, the uh, NFB film, because as part of the Science Fiction Club where Rob started, it was called NASF and Northview Association for Science Fiction Addicts. Rob started. I was a president in uh, '82 and and ran the last sort of science fiction uh, convention, the One Day One on on my sister's birthday, April seventeenth, nineteen eighty two. So on April seventeenth, it'll be forty year anniversary for that convention, and um, uh, and I had a point. Uh, yes, Universe. So at, at part of the high school science fiction club, there was a night where they just had various clubs at the uni- and and parents and have other people could just go and see them. And we showed Universe on one of these. 16 millimeter projector things and it's just so cool because they should make something like that again with the current science because what they knew back then it was kind of awe-inspiring and interesting but it was nothing compared to what people know about the universe now but also that when it was running somehow there's something wrong with the projector and it was just spooling off the back of the uh thing and it was rolling on the floor which was kind of you know we have the, we start the episode the, the first part of the episode talk about melting screen the 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 film 2001 melting on and then we have universe rolling on the floor but um try i don't know if you want to just add, any final comments before we get into what you guys are currently working on
2: i have behind me here uh as we're talking on display the 4k disc of 2001 a space odyssey i do not yet have a 4k television but i bought the disc knowing that as soon as i finally get one the first thing i want to watch in 4k is 2001 a space odyssey
0: you know i bought the dvd to 2001 and i've never cracked it because for me the way to see it is in 70 millimeter I I am actually thinking that the last time I saw it actually was with you, Rob. Wasn't that the last time we saw that film at TIFF? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. And, um, you know, so, but to me, I saw it at the Cinesphere. Um, This is a film that really needs that big, huge, widescreen, immersive um, experience. And, And we haven't really talked enough about it, but the sound in this film is extraordinary. The fact that The way Kubrick doesn't use music or anything, just the breathing of the astronauts. And when you're in a giant theater, it's just so affecting. It's so mind blowingly brilliant. And again, to me, it really has to be seen, you know, with that kind of 70 millimeter print, with the attention to the visual and audio detail.
3: Did you have something to add there, Robert?
2: Oh, just that that breathing, this is something I learned in the last 10 years, is Stanley Kubrick himself. I learned that no. from the, the book, Space Odyssey, <laughs> that the easiest way to get it exactly as he wanted it is he decided to do it himself. So it's not Kier Doulet, it's Stanley Kubrick that you would hear. <sighs> pre pre saging. Now that's something that Lucas took for Darth Vader from 2001, the audible breathing.
0: Here I was saying I had never learned anything. And right now, (laughs) there you are (laughs) Two minutes ago. I learned something about it. (laughs) I did not know that. That's fascinating.
3: Yeah. That space space odyssey book is, is brilliant. I sort of like went into this week with that on audible and it's, yeah, there was a lot to pick up from it. I had the
2: great pleasure of being in, was it Montreal that I was in? The author was there on a book tour. Um, So I went and actually met him and and we went out to dinner. And just, uh, this is a book that I recommend highly. And I'm, uh, I wish I had right in front of me the name of the author. I will get it
3: for you right now. I've got it on audible. So just give me a second. I don't know. I think it's Michael something, but let me just get it for you. Michael Benson.
2: Yeah. Space Odyssey, colon Stanley Kubrick, Arthur C. Clarke and the Making of a Masterpiece by Michael Benson, B-E-N-S-O-N. And I just recommend it highly. Not an illustrated history. It's a text history, but it's filled with interviews and discussions. And it's just a fine, fine book, Space Odyssey.
3: Michael Benson. Well, thanks so much, guys. Is there anything that you want to share with the audience? Things that either you're working on or where we can find you or anything you'd like to say before we wrap up? My latest novel is the Oppenheimer alternative.
2: It's in bookstores. It's on audible. It's available as an ebook. Um, and uh, it has a few little Easter eggs about 2001 buried in the text.
0: And I have nothing to announce right now. I I'm working on a bunch of things, none of which I I've learned painful history that I should never say uh, what's coming out for me. And, mm. and I'm reminded of that because a friend in England sent me a, a Charles Vess interview that he did a long time ago in which he says, my friend Mark Asquith and I are working on a Wolverine graphic novel. And of course, that never happened. And so, um, I'm not going to say anything <laughs> until it's actually out. I, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll say all of whom are listening to me just by Rob's Oppenheimer Alternative. It was a fantastic book. And, uh, um, yeah. So go do that. Um, yeah.
3: But I, Mark, I, can, I, I
0: wish I had something more to plug, but I got nothing to plug.
3: Well, can you remind us of your uh, the title of your prisoner graphic novel?
0: The prisoner gra- graphic novel is called Shattered Visage, which is not my title. That was chosen by Richard mm-hmm. bruning who was our editor at the time, uh, because I had brought up the Ozymandias Mandias poem. Um but uh and I, you know, this isn't really a plug, but I've been I didn't know that there was, on YouTube, you can find all the old Prisoners, not all, but some of the Prisoners of Gravity episodes that I made. And I think 10 years ago, I would have found them painful and horrible to watch. But these days, watching my friends at the age, you know, whatever it is, 35, 40 years ago, in interviews is really quite wonderful to see them. And, and to see how engaged in the ideas of science fiction and fantasy that the authors on that show uh, were really about, and that hasn't dated. That part of it has not dated. That science fiction continues to think about these essential ideas. What is it to be human? Uh, What makes us special or not? Um, And as you said in part one, uh, one of the things that I love is portal stories. So I love fairy tales and ideas where you're transported to a new uh, world, and even though 2001 technically isn't a portal story, I think getting into a spaceship and going away off to Jupiter is pretty portalish.
2: Oh, contraire, mon petit chien! It has the <laughs> Stargate. It has the Stargate. Oh, it has it a l- literal portal in it. There you go.
0: Of course, I wasn't thinking about that. <laughs> so yeah, there's another portal. So all about the portal stories. Well, thanks a lot, Rob and Mark,
1: um, for uh, being our guests. I mean, once we realized we wanted to do this and we saw that you both had listed it as your favorite genre science uh, genre film, we said, hey, this is just perfect. And having two guests, I think it worked out very well.
2: So thank you both for uh, being on the show. An honor, a privilege. Thank you.
0: Very much. It's so much fun to discuss it with people who care about this film as much as we do.
1: Thanks, guys. So that's our um, that's our 2001 A Space Odyssey, a part two, and Troy can go over how you can reach us.
3: Well, look for us on all of our socials. We're pretty much everywhere these days. Our website is 2numeric2of.ca. Two, two, Uh, we're on twitter at two numeric two old farts sci-fi and facebook we're two old farts talk sci-fi in all of those various forms please uh like subscribe tell friends uh rant in the streets about how much you love us i am david clink and i am troy harkin see you all for our next episode of two old farts talk sci-fi